happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Behind the Bastards. I'm Robert Evans, uh, and this is a podcast about the worst people in all of history. And this week, we are talking about some very uh, uh, creative men who who like to design them some weapons. Uh, my guests uh, this episode, as with last episode, uh, Carl Casarda from In Range TV. Carl, how are you doing? So. I'm doing pretty good. I'm um, sitting here contemplating my uh, my future with a Maxim machine gun. But let's, let me teach me more about something that I probably need in my life that I'm not aware of. Well, yeah, I mean this this would this would be a little bit harder to the, the weapons we're talking about today would be slightly harder to acquire than a Maxim gun. Um, and requires somewhat more space. Um, as a spoiler for where we're going, you will need a hill or a small mountain to properly use this. Um, so you know, I don't know how much property you have, but but maybe set a, like a, a good sized hill aside. Um, you'll need about a thousand meters. So as we discussed last episode, here at Maxim may be directly responsible for more deaths via his invention than any other arms designer in history. Now, our next subject was equally brilliant in his ability to design guns. He's probably better at it than Hiram was. He may be better at it than anybody was. Um, the fact that his creations killed fewer people is not through lack of trying, although his goal was never to make weapons of war. That was just kind of a, a, an un, that was kind of a necessary aside to the thing he really wanted to do. The guy we're talking about today is Gerald Bull. And when I say guns here, we're talking about the big stuff, like artillery pieces. We're not talking about anything you can fit in a jacket, you know? Um, Gerald Vincent Bull was born on March 9th, 1928 in North Bay, Ontario. You may recognize this as being part of Canada. Uh, and the fact that two of the three great gun designers in North American history were from nowhere near the South is a fact of some shame from my people. Um, Mose Browning was born in what, Utah? So, yeah. yeah. Mm, still. 
Come on, South. Somebody figure something out. Uh, but enough of that. Uh, Ger- Gerald's father was George Toussaint Bull. Uh, he was a lawyer, and he was he and his wife were very productive during the brief time that they were alive, spreading a lot of kids out uh, over the land. Ten children. Um, they were quite comfortable financially for a little while until about a year after Gerald was born when the stock market crashed. You know, 1929, not a great year. For anybody, really. Uh, George had taken out a bunch of loans for investments during the bull market, uh, and he wound up broke when they came due after the crash. The family had to move to Toronto for work. Now, Gertrude Bull, Gerald's mother, kept having kids, and she suffered severe complications after giving birth to her 10th child. So Gerald was kid number nine. A um, couple years later, she has child number 10, Gordon, and she it doesn't go great. Uh, she dies in April of 1931, uh, which sets uh, Gerald's dad, George, on a sharp decline. He becomes an alcoholic, he has a nervous breakdown, and he abandons his children and leaves them with his sister. Laura, who dies almost immediately afterwards. So by the time Gerald is five, he has had he's been through the ringer. That's a rough set of cards to draw as a five-year-old child. Wow. Yeah. You gotta wonder how that influences someone to to their adulthood, right? I mean, losing your mother, you're essentially part of a litter. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You don't have brothers and sisters, you have a litter. Yeah, Um, you've got a litter. Your dad dad just fucks right off. Your second mom dies, like... It's not great. No, that's not great. Yeah. Um, And we will talk a little bit about how this influences him, but definitely not a stable upbringing, right? Um, So George, his dad, uh, falls in love with somebody else, uh, gets married, um, and does not take his children back once he's married in a more stable position. Instead, after his sister dies, he gives up his kids to an assortment of relatives. He just kind of like splits them and then goes off and does his own thing. He's like, I don't want these kids around anymore. I'm trying to know. I'm doing a new life. You get a kid. You get a kid. You get a kid. Everyone gets a kid. You know the rule. Your mom's dead. I ain't your dad anymore. (laughs) That's how this shit works. Gotta find me another uterus to destroy. (laughs) Yeah, we don't get a ton of detail about George Bull, but he definitely sucks pretty bad. Um, Gerald winds up being raised largely by his older sister, Bernice. Um, And when he was nine or ten, he starts spending the summer with his aunt and uncle, who were well off and able to send him to an all-boys Jesuit school. So he does have a large family who takes care of them. He's kind of an orphan, but he's taken care of by his family who are comfortable enough that like he's not a financial burden to them and they are they actually like put a lot of resources into him so it is a rough childhood it's not nearly as bad as it could be right he doesn't wind up in an institution or something um he has a loving family his dad is just a massive piece of shit so uh he starts doing better at this point once he gets to the jesuit school and he shows an aptitude for engineering he had a hobby of designing and building model airplanes out of balsa wood um not like a kit for an airplane he would just get raw wood and he would make his own planes and fly them so gerald graduates in 1944 and he was accepted uh to queen's university uh his initial plan was to join the military as an officer but he found himself really really taken by engineering he transferred to the university of toronto where he'd been accepted by their new aeronautical engineering school this was an undergraduate program and gerald was 16 years old when he starts it right so he is he is not just in college he's in a graduate program for aeronautical engineering when he's a 16 year old um so very very smart kid right 
Uh, and also a very ambitious kid. But the uncertainty and abandonment in his childhood had left keen marks on him. Classmates noted that he could be difficult to work with and prone to anger, something that would be commented on by his peers for the rest of his life. Charles Murphy, who worked closely with Gerald as an adult, later told interviewers, In a sense, he was an orphan, and that affected his personality a lot. He wanted people to like him, and he felt hurt and rejection keenly. And kind of like Maxim, he's one of these guys that when someone wrongs him or he sees someone is wrong, he never is able to let this shit go. Um, they're both men who take it, which I find interesting, who take slights extremely personally and like cannot deal with with the idea that somebody has wronged them. Uh, Bull's program was funded by the Defense Research Board of Canada, and his first project as a student was to build a supersonic wind tunnel. He used this as the basis for his 1949 master's thesis, and by 1950, he'd almost finished his PhD thesis, which is an insane rate of productivity for a young academic, going from master's to PhD thesis in the space of about a year. Um, he is a really smart kid. Now, that year, the DRB asked the school to provide them with an aerodynamicist for a missile project, codenamed Velvet Glove. He proved to be exceptional at practical engineering, and Gerald Bull was quickly selected to participate in this joint Canadian-British Defense Department program to study artillery and develop new methods for shooting people with big guns. The program that he worked with next had been started during World War II um, in Canada to keep British weapons developments out of German hands, and now that the Cold War was on, the purpose of the program switched to ensure that the Commonwealth had the most accurate artillery possible that they could use if things got hot again. He helped to design some of the the first segmented aluminum sabo rounds he's like the guy who really in like is a heavy part of obviously its teams but he's one of the people who invents like the concept of a sabo round and makes it actually effective and that's when you have like a big smoothbore gun and there's basically rifling in this sabo thing that gets discarded as the the shell travels out of the barrel and it allows you to do things like later on they'll do stuff like the the art the artillery piece will almost be a rocket. And when the Sabo is discarded, wings pop out or fins pop out that allow it to like stay more aerodynamic. Like the fact that you have this, th that you build this discarding Sabo system allows you to do all sorts of stuff with, with artillery rounds that people couldn't really do before. It'll also enhance the capabilities of existing artillery because you're taking yeah. an existing smoothbore and by changing the projectile, you're probably giving it higher accuracy and greater range. Yeah, that's exactly, and that's exactly a big part of this is, you know, the militaries and whatnot are always like, there's always budgetary concerns. We have all these big guns. The Sabo allows us to massively upgrade their capacity and we don't have to actually make new fucking guns, um, which nobody really wants to deal with. Um, so yeah, uh, he helps design some of these, the first of these rounds. He also helps to design new methods for testing powerful artillery. That's much more like the, the artillery they're making shoots so much further and faster than it ever has. They have to invent new ways to decide to figure out how fast they're shooting it. Right. Like they didn't actually have the equipment to determine how fast are we firing these shells? Um, cause they'd never needed to. So he's, he's not just making the rounds. He's also helping to figure out how are we actually going to analyze and test this stuff? Because that needs to be invented right alongside it. Um, in 1951, at age 21, he gets his PhD, becoming one of the youngest PhDs in the university's history to this day. Um, so life's pretty good for Bull during this period. On a fishing trip in the early 50s, he meets the daughter of a local doctor, Naomi Gilbert. Uh, the two start dating and then get married in 1954. Her father gave the couple a house as their wedding gift, and the very next year, their first son, Philip, was born. Michelle followed soon after. 
Now, Gerald was exceptional enough at what he did that in 1953, he received attention from McLean's magazine, which titled him Canada's Boy Rocket Scientist. His cantankerous nature, though, increasingly asserted itself. As a fundamentally pragmatic, experiment-driven scientist, he expressed hatred for theoretical researchers, who he called cocktail scientists. He also grew increasingly furious with red tape, which restricted the kind of weapons projects that he could embark on. So he really hates anyone who's not getting their hands dirty actually, like, making shit. He has no time at all for, like, theoretical physics or anything like that. He wants to go out and build things, and if you're not doing that, he thinks you're kind of full of shit. Well, that kind of smells like I'm the smartest guy in the room sort of simplex complex, does it not? Like, all these other people are just holding me back. Get out of my way and watch what I can do. He's probably a narcissist. Like you, we, you can't diagnose someone based on this, but he he has and it and he's 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 a genius. But he also has this extremely high opinion of himself and gets enraged whenever someone is like, "No, we don't really want you to do that." Like, I wonder. I mean, I wonder. I, I not to be. I'm not. I'm not a psychiatrist, but I wonder how much that comes back to being sort of discarded as a child. Yeah. Yeah. I really. I mean, it's 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 interesting to think about. Like it it's, it must have had some sort of impact. Um, and yeah, he really, he never is able to handle being told no. So an early example of both of these things came in 1955 when Bull was working on a smooth bore gun that could fire explosive rounds at 4,550 miles per hour. This would be the fastest and most accurate artillery piece ever made. Now, to make his gun work, he had to design a special telemetry system to even collect data on how the weapon functioned. His plans to do this were considered impossible by staff at the organization he was working at, and several of them went to the mat to try to stop Bull from moving forward. To thwart them, he sneakily moved his department's funding around, paying for the project under their noses. And it worked. Bull continued his work more or less without fanfare for the next decade, experimenting with anti-ballistic missiles and radar, eventually impressing the director of the U.S. Army Research and Development Division enough that a model of one of Bull's guns was brought to the States and test-fired over the Atlantic. The U.S. team had to use the fire control radar from a Nike Hercules missile to track the shells fired by Bull's gun, which reached altitudes of 130,000 feet. So this is like, this is a gun that shoots at such ranges and so quickly that you have to use like the, the, the radar systems on a fucking missile to, to track the projectiles it fires. It's fascinating because like, I was just kind of making a joke about being the smartest guy in the room, but he might legitimately have been the smartest guy in the room. He's very smart. Yeah. Like, yeah. (laughs) Like when we say he's making guns, he's making like uh, like he's making like fantasy weapons. Like <laughs> these are these are uh, extremely advanced uh, weapon platforms. So at this point, yeah, he's making guns that can basically fire into space. Like he's he's wa- he's making weapons that can shoot projectiles oh. damn near into orbit. Sounds like something you'd read in a Jules Verne novel. Yeah. Um, He must have liked Jules Verne as a kid. And his work here was as much rocket science as it was anything like what Maxim and other men were doing a generation or two earlier, right? And so in like, uh, literally like a generation or two, we've gone from uh, making a water-cooled gun that that is recoil-operated fi- to I am shooting missiles into the sp- into space. <laughs> <laughs> it It is, again, just like a mark of how quickly things change. Now, it was at this point in the late 1950s that Bull and his colleague and friend, Gerald Murphy, started talking about doing something totally new with their cannons. Instead of just firing munitions, might it be possible to use them to launch aircraft? 
They started with model airplanes. And when I say model airplanes, scale models of airplanes, one, one scale models of airplanes that they are shooting out of cannons to see, like, can we launch fucking planes this way? Um, one of the weapon, one of the planes that they launch through a, a cannon this way is a supersonic jet called the Avro Aero. Uh, Bull's work yielded early results, and it actually revealed a flaw in, like, one of the stabilization systems in the Aero because they were shooting it so quickly that leads to this very important safety upgrade in the plane that makes it a lot safer to fly. So there's immediate results to this, but the institute he's working at cancels the program immediately after like this. And he's enraged again, right? He wants to keep shooting planes out of guns and the university's like, no, we feel like you, that's all we need to know about shooting a plane out of a gun. Like, so we're going to take your funding away. And he's livid, you know, in his eyes, these cocktail scientists have robbed him of a chance to do a thing he thought was cool. It does sound like a lot of fun. It does sound, it fucking sounds <laughs> rad as hell. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I would have loved to get to hang out and just watch him shoot planes out of guns. That sounds neat. So in 1957, Russia does a Sputnik, uh, which we today see as rad, but Americans and a lot of Canadians found terrifying at the time. And there's this this whole mania over, well, now we got to get a fucking satellite up there, right? This is this is all space race stuff. Everybody's probably broadly familiar with this. Um, so Gerald Bull takes this as an opportunity and he leaks a story to the press that Canada was about to put their own Sputnik type satellite into orbit by building a high velocity cannon into the nose of a Redstone missile. Now, this was a complete lie, but he wanted he wanted to make this thing. So he figured I leak this to the press. There will be a frenzy in Canada for me to launch a satellite and then I'll get to build this. And again, this this is one of the most insane ideas I've ever heard. He's talking about like a nuclear ballistic missile and you replace the 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 explosive in it with a gun built into the front of the missile so that the missile shoots up into the sky and then the gun fires a satellite into space from the missile so that's the second stage essentially it's a fucking insane idea He's and he's also like really incredibly playing the media. It's it's yeah. truly fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like he sees he's he's looking at this missile the size of a fucking building and goes, "I bet I could stick a fucking gun in that and that'd be pretty dope." And if I put this out in the news and say yeah. that Canada's making it mm-hmm. and they don't make it, mm-hmm. it'll embarrass yeah. them. So now they have to make it. Well, that was his hope. It doesn't quite work out. So the leaked story was obviously a calculated act, but it causes an uproar in the Canadian government. And the prime minister, a guy named Diefen Baker, loudly denounces the idea as bogus to the press. So it does not work for him. And heads rolled in Bull's office. But the hubbub also led to massive press interest in the Canadian Armament and Research Development Establishment, or CARD, which is where he was working at the time. Um, and the subsequent, a lot of the media coverage that comes out of this, this leak and the brouhaha around it focuses on guns that Gerald Bold had built. So he doesn't get his wish. He doesn't get to build his missile gun, but he gets a lot of interest in his the guns that he, he he's already built. So it does kind of work out for him. By the end of the 50s, Bull was fed up with the timidity of his superiors. In April of 1961, he had an argument with one of his bosses who wanted him to complete paperwork before moving on to actually testing stuff. Bull asked his boss, which is more important, paperwork or getting the work done? And his boss said, in this case, paperwork. So Bull responded, you want paperwork? I'll give you paperwork. And he wrote out his resignation right there on the spot. So he he stops working for the university, the Canadian government, this like big joint project. Um, 
Yeah, you get a sense of like the kind of duty. I have to admit, having a career in information Absolutely. security, I totally get that. I yeah. can't tell you how many change control documents I never filled out, right? I can't fucking handle that shit. I just wanted to make routers do stuff and make firewalls go. I didn't want to make paperwork go. I get that. Yeah, I mean, fuck paperwork. Like, he, it's hard not to be on his side with some of this. Just like, yeah, that it's I it, it uh, of course it would be frustrating if all you want to do is build guns into the into missiles and shoot them into space. If somebody wants you to fill out a fucking requisition form, um, that's just useful time you could spend making your space guns. So according to the book Wilderness of Mirrors, uh, a report which is a book about Gerald Bull, uh, a, a Canadian Army intelligence report on Bull that came out after his death, later analyzed this incident that led to him quitting card and concluded his tempestuous nature and strong dislike for administration and red tape constantly led him into trouble with senior management. And this is true. And you get the feeling that however uh, understandable some of this may have been, he was a, he was an asshole to work with. Like he, he was not um, an easy man to have as a colleague. Bull transitioned pretty seamlessly to a professorship at McGill University, where he kept helped to carry out more experiments with aerodynamics and big guns. He and his wife actually purchased a 2,000-acre plot of land on the Quebec-Vermont border, which they donated to McGill University to use as a ballistics lab, to like use as a shooting range. Bull quickly received funding from Project HARP, which stood for High Altitude Research Project. It was a joint operation by the U.S. Department of Defense and the Canadian equivalent. And the goal was to study the ballistics of reentry using large guns to fire projectiles at high speed and then watching those projectiles fall back to Earth. So, right, this is part of the space race. They, they know we're going to be launching shit up and we're going to need some of it to come back without killing people in it. So we need to shoot a bunch of stuff up and in, into the atmosphere and then let it fall and take data on like what happens when shit falls because we haven't done that before. And the most efficient way they can think of to do that is these giant guns that Gerald Bull has been building because it's like, well, yeah, we don't need to. We don't need to actually be getting it into space. We just want to look at what's happening like aerodynamically as these things land. Let's have him shoot a bunch of stuff up and take notes on it. Um, Are there bonus points if the projectiles land on a small Polynesian island? (laughs) Um, I don't. uh, It's not written about here, Um, but maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. and and I, these are not like ballistic rat like these are guns that could be used as artillery but they're they're like little models and stuff that they're basically shooting and and monitoring at this point um and bull's work here is very successful and he's very supported by his boss uh the head of mcgill's engineering department donald mordell other professors described quote second rate attempts at manipulation by bull to secure more resources for his work this was unnecessary as mordell believed in bull's projects but he was constantly needled anyway in this war at him so again even when he he's really supported by his boss he he can't like he's he's he never shows any gratitude for the stuff that he's getting he's always just like no no i want more i want more i want to be able to do more he's just you know not a, not a i mean he's he's also a very motivated guy and so he just kind of has this um some of it's being very prickly and a dick some of it's just he's got this very relentless belief in his projects and can't really stand the thought of not moving forward on them. Now, Bull's work for Harp was wildly successful. His cannons worked even better than intended. For the people funding the research, the primary goal here was just to further the space race. The guns existed to provide data on how different things re-entered the atmosphere. But Gerald Bull didn't think of things that way. He believed his guns were the real stars of the show. And he starts to think about, he starts to have more and more ideas around this, like, well, I don't really like the fact that 
the 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 gun is just sort of a, a thing to study the ballistics of shit falling. I think the gun, I think these guns I'm building can really be like the basis of a new of the of the whole space program. That's 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 how he increasingly starts to think. Now, what happens next is influenced by something that happens in 1965. And to tell that story, I'm going to read, read a quote from a write up in the New York Times. A middle-aged German woman arrived in Montreal to visit a relatively unknown scientist at the McGill University Space Research Institute. The scientist was Professor Gerald Bull, then 37. The German woman who sought Bull out was the daughter of an engineer who had worked on the top-secret Paris gun project during the First World War. Developed by Krupp, the German steelmakers, the Paris gun was an enormous howitzer with a range of 74 miles, double that of any weapon then existing. First fired on the morning of March 23, 1918, during German Germany's spring offensive, it instantly brought terror to Paris's placid arrondissements. The first round hit the Palace of the Republic. The French, aghast and mystified, sent intelligence officers into the woods surrounding the city in search of a hidden German gun emplacement. On Good Friday, March 29th, the guns scored a hit on the Church of St. Gervais in central Paris, killing 91 and injuring 100. The Paris gun came too late to turn the tide of the First World War in Germany's favor, but it was an incredible technical triumph for its inventor, Fritz Rausenberger. Krupp's head of artillery development and production. Even with the relatively primitive technology of the time, the shell reached a height of 26 miles, an altitude not exceeded until Germany developed the V-2 rocket in World War II. So this woman uh, comes to uh, Canada with papers from Rausenberger's archives. So the Germans, the, the Paris gun never falls into allied hands at the end of World War One. It's dismantled and like hidden or destroyed. And nobody knows how this thing was fucking built, right? Because it's it's a, a military secret. It doesn't fall in anyone's hands. It's kind of a mystery. The blueprints are, were lost forever, essentially. But this German woman has an unpublished manuscript from Rausenberger's family archives. And it wasn't the original blueprint, but it had hard data on the gun's capabilities. And it's enough information that both is able to reverse engineer the gun from this and rebuild it via computer model so he actually gets effectively the plans for the paris gun by this i guess this woman who's just like well he's he's building the biggest guns anyone's building uh and i think my my uh my ancestor felix would would want him to have these plans for this hey, big, i'm a big fan gun. of giant guns i hear yeah. you're a fan of giant guns why don't you give you some of the secret information so you could build a giant ass gun yeah, it's really kind of a weird, like, I I want to know more about this lady who just, like, is, is taken by this quest to help this man build the biggest gun ever. <laughs> like, it's such a strange thing to want to do. <laughs> but I'm going to quote again from the New York Times about what happens next. At that moment, the obsession was born that would dominate Bull's life and determine his death. Bull realized that if the projectile in the huge gun was a powered rocket, its range could be increased dramatically. With the backing of the United States Army, the Canadian Department of Defense Production, and McGill University, he established a test site on the island of Barbados and set to work on the high-altitude research project. By welding together two 16-inch guns that had been put in storage by the U.S. Navy, Bull created a huge gun 36 meters long with a diameter of 424 millimeters it remains the longest working gun ever built he is he is the man who's made the biggest gun wow <laughs> at least the longest gun i don't even sure. know what to i mean i mean yeah it's, it's wild I, I, right i can totally yeah. see why he was going down this path and the concept yeah. of instead of just using a rocket from the surface to get to space i mean making a rocket giving it its boost by just a general ballistic boost with a gun is pretty amazing idea 
It, it is. And he is a weapons designer here, but he's, his goal is not to make a weapon. The weapon, he's, his goal is like, I think the gun should be a platform for space exploration. Um, so again, nothing like bad that he's done here. Like no. even, even within the context of like, yeah, it's wild that he's got like the plans for this German apocalypse cannon. Um, but he's using it because he wants to shoot stuff into space, which I would say is a, a broadly noble aim, wanting to shoot stuff. I mean, there's always like the whole dick measuring ah. of the Cold War, but like it's cool to put stuff in space. Yeah, it's interesting to think about this. You've got the you've got the Paris gun being used in this instance, and the V two rocket ultimately, and von Braun being yeah. the Saturn V that gets us to the moon. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's two different instances of these German weapons of war being turned mm-hmm. into space exploration ideas. Yeah, it's interesting that like he we get. Bull take a gun that was made basically so that we could shell random civilian structures in Paris to scare the French winds up becoming the basis of a system to shoot satellites into space like that's that is really strange um but it makes sense you know like obviously if you can shoot a shell 74 miles you're not all that far from being able to put something into space. You're well on your way, at least, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> you, and, and I believe yeah. the V two was the first thing to actually ever make it into space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yes, uh, the German arms industry complicated, complicated thing to think about. <laughs> a lot of good, a lot of bad. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of a lot of good, a lot of bad, it's time for you an know ad who break. Is heavily supported by the German arms industry, Sophie this podcast oh good uh-huh yeah we are we are entirely supported by the german munitions industry so go pick up a uh something from car just find some sort of car arm and buy it or one of those submarines the germans keep selling the egyptians for some reason get one of those this does get explain a- why this podcast is as hard as krupp stall mm-hmm. that's exactly <laughs> right that's what everyone says about our podcast we're the first people anyone said that about anyway Here's ads. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is 
finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the Challenge Gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Ah, we're back. So, Gerald Bull, at this point, has built the longest gun anyone still has ever built. I guess because there's not really any need for, like, if you could shoot a thing into space, you've kind of made the biggest gun anyone needs to make. (laughs) There's not a lot of, of, of point to going bigger at that point, at that stage. So as the project neared its close, Bull felt he'd perfected plans for a gun-launched three-stage rocket with flip-out fins using the Sabo technology he'd helped work on. That could put a small, functional satellite into orbit. He was extremely excited by this idea, as his son Philippe later recalled. He thought HARP would be a big advancement for Canada in aeronautical engineering. They were already putting small probes into space. It was the drive of his life to be working on that project. He was alone. It was his project. It came from his brains, and it was functioning. It worked. And so this is like the high point of his life. But it doesn't last long, because on June 30th, 1967, the Canadian government stops funding HARP. Their justification is that they didn't like the idea that their space program would be so closely associated with military hardware. They find it distasteful that their space program involves like gigantic guns, right? Um, they don't like the idea. That's one reason. Another reason is that... Um, they're 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 moving towards rockets right the vast majority of scientists working in the u.s and canada on the space race are all pretty much in agreement that rockets are the way to get shit into space without breaking it um and you know bull is kind of a his his attitude is like well no we should do it with gigantic guns and he's basically the only guy on team giant guns for the space race right so obviously he does not win that argument um and who knows what would have been better, right? Like it worked out more or less. So I'm I'm not going to backseat rocket scientist. Interesting to note the U.S. had no such qualms about the origins of their technology. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, and I I don't I don't like that was one of the reasons that like they gave him. I don't know how much I believe any government would like give a shit about that, but 
I, I don't guess think of governments that, as I don't yeah. think of governments as being basically that altruistic. So that seems no. odd. Yeah, I mean, maybe it was like maybe there was some PR concern because he's using some of his technology is this giant Paris gun, which is doesn't have a great history, you know. Um, but yeah, uh, so right, he the rocket scientists kind of went out over the gun scientists who are basically just Gerald Bull, um, and the New York Times in their write up adds that quote. Bull later admitted that personality clashes had aggravated his budgetary problems. Arrogance was his trademark, and he had made few friends among his government backers. He frequently referred to bureaucrats as morons and the lowest form of life on earth. The abrupt termination of Harp devastated Bull. He was out in the wilderness, his dream of recreating the the Paris gun stillborn. The cocktail scientists had beaten him, but Bull was determined to get his revenge. In an epilogue to the book called Studies of Ultra-Performance Harp Systems, he sketched out plans for an extraordinary new weapon, a launcher 32 inches in diameter that could blast a 1,200-pound payload 600 miles into space. <laughs> I, I'm sure this is going to take a darker turn, but up until now, his disdain for paperwork and his mm-hmm, desire mm-hmm. to prove this technology with the ultimate goal of launching it's things into endearing. space. It's very yeah. endearing. Actually, I'm kind of digging the guy at the moment. Yeah. I'm kind of waiting for the bomb to drop. Yeah, it, it, it's about to, but it is yeah. like it is. There is something noble about like this man just wanted to build a gun that could shoot stuff into space. And I mean, like, that's a noble goal in itself. That, when you yeah. think of the space race, I mean, we knew this was needed to be done. It's and, and it's it's also a pretty cool life ambition. <laughs> and frankly, if he had gotten it done sooner, maybe we wouldn't mm-hmm. have seen uh, would have put Elon Musk into a different line of business. Yeah, he'd, we'd be just making cannons to shoot rich people into space. So. Bull decided he was done with bureaucrats and cocktail scientists forever. He used his savings and his wife's ample family money to form his own company, the Space Research Corporation of Quebec. This was modeled after the institute he'd worked for at McGill, but it would be private and not as subject to the whims of government officials. Since Harp had been killed, the equipment built for it was being sold for basically nothing. So Bull's new company buys all of this, including the Barbados gun in the test uh, area, for basically nothing. Uh, They also get a 20,000-acre site near Quebec. Most of their funding comes from contracts by the U.S. Army um, or U.S. military, who are not interested in Bull's satellite goals, but are interested in his ability to make big fuck-up guns. Um, And his pitch to them was basically like, I built the biggest gun ever. Want to see if I can make a bigger one. Um, And the U.S. is actually not all that interested in his guns, but as we talked about earlier, they're interested in better artillery shells for their existing guns. Um, And they want Bull to make them nuclear-capable artillery shells with a top range of 25 miles, which is fucking nuts. Wanting to shoot a nuke at someone 20 miles away with a field gun is absolutely madcap like hopefully you can start driving in the opposite direction and have a remote detonator to set it off right a remote trigger yeah gerald we want you to make a suicide cannon for our boys in europe just something that'll kill everybody around what's the kill so we're going to launch this 25 miles what's the kill radius 50 miles oh Oh, this sounds like a great plan yeah cool (laughs) um yeah this is like the early 70s so you have to assume a lot of cocaine is involved at this point um 
So Operation Nuke Bullets is a big hit, uh, and even non-nuclear versions of the shells are sold en masse to Israel in 1973 for counter-battery fire, because they were getting outranged by Soviet artillery in a number of engagements they had, and these new shells allow them to take the, the range advantage back in a number of their conflicts. So the U.S. defense establishment goes very gaga for Bull's bullets, which had made the U.S. M107 the most valuable field gun on the face of the earth. Money came pouring in, uh, and the United States was grateful enough that Bastard's Pod alumni Barry Goldwater, the then senator from Arizona, pushed forward a bill making Gerald Bull retroactively a U.S. citizen for the last 10 years. Now, <laughs> that's interesting. Goldwater shows up in such interesting places over and over again. Yeah, <laughs> that's a real weird one for him to be at. And the, the reason they give Gerald Bull like a ten, basically his citizenship, it counts as if he's been a citizen for 10 years. It's a security clearance thing. They mm. want to be able to give him a higher security clearance because of the work that he's doing. But there's like requirements about how long you had to be a U.S. citizen. He's one of, I think, three people who have ever had this done. Um, Unless you were a Nazi and then you just get straight lined right in. Well, we don't talk about that so much. That doesn't yeah. go up in Congress, you no, know? it's different, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Space Research Corporation was doing pretty well by most people's standards at this point. They've got about $11 million in U.S. defense contracts, which is quite a lot of money at the time. But Bull is still disappointed by their rate of growth. From the Washington Post, quote, in two competitions, his revolutionary 155mm shell design outshot the U.S. Army's M198 cannon system hands down, according to knowledgeable sources. But the Army spurned his system and stuck with its own less powerful guns. So they want his shells, they have things they want him to do for them, but he wants to make really big guns and sell them. And the U.S. Army's like, no, we don't really, we don't want to buy a whole new set of artillery. Like, we're happy that you've made the ones we have work a lot better. We don't, we're not really on board with this shit. And again, he never forgives the United States for not wanting to buy his big stupid cannons. Um, now, he'll keep taking their money, but this like really enrages him. So he works out a deal with a Belgian ammunition manufacturer to create a European subsidiary of his company funded by an injection of their investment cash. This money allowed Gerald Bull to do what he did best, design new, really fucking big cannons. And his latest invention was the GC Gun Canadian 45, a 155 millimeter howitzer that could fire a shell with twice the throw weight of any of the biggest guns used at the time. It outranges all of the existing field artillery in the world by a significant margin. The New York Times writes, quote, a triumph of military engineering, the GC-45 vindicated Bull's belief in his own genius. He took his revenge by selling it to the highest bidder. That turned out to be South Africa, then fighting a costly war against Soviet-backed Angolan and Cuban forces on the savannas of Angola and in desperate need of a new long-range artillery weapon. Restricted by the United Nations arms embargo, the South African regime set out to acquire the GC-45 technology illegally. At first, South Africa approached space Research Corporation to provide 55,000 extended range shells for its existing artillery. The U.S. helped the deal along with the, with the, when the Office of Munitions Control waived the requirement to obtain an export license for what were termed as rough steel forgings. Two unidentified gun barrels, the GC 45 test models, were shipped out with the shells. So this is very illegal. So what happens is he gets the U.S. to approve him selling them better shells, and he ships out pieces of these GC-45 guns of a prototype to the South Africans at the same time. And the U.S. is very aware about this, but it's all kept on the down low because you're not allowed to sell South African new military technology because they're using it 
in brutal colonial wars uh, with a, a, a deep racist bent. I have to um, assume that the U.S. government at that point is eyeballing that security clearance they gave him pretty warily. Oh, no, no. They're on board with this because, oh, okay. again, South Africa's anti-communist. So ah! this is very illegal. But he's, he, he, they are they know exactly what's going on. They're helping make this happen. But it's also technically illegal. Right. Like it's one of these. Uh, uh, George Gerald's son, Michael, um, later would say about his father's understanding of the arrangement that he was, quote, led to believe it was the thing to do, that the U.S. had a passive policy to more or less favor these type of things in order to save the last bastion of capitalism in Africa. So it's very illegal and no one ever says we're making this legal. They're just like, hey, if you just do this, it's not going to be a problem. Amazing. We got you. We got you, buddy. Just like just just get the biggest guns possible to the most racist country in the world. (laughs) As many of them as you can ship over. (laughs) Um, And by God, he does. In 1977, the South African government's arms division buys a uh, which I think is called Arms Corps, buys a 20 percent stake in the Space Research Corporation, which came with a license to manufacture the GC 45, which they'd already received parts to copy. Soon, South Africa was marketing their gun as the G5, a product of their homegrown arms industry and absolutely not a violation of international law. So they're like, we made a cannon that's really good. We made it all on our own. We just popped (laughs) this out of nothing. We just figured this out all on our own, pulled out a little, you know, sheet of paper at the local pub and drew on it with some crayons and boom, here we go. Yeah. Giant we, we built a real big gun all on our own. Just us. South that Africa. Sh- I mean, that's that's our South African ingenuity right there, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So this works out for a while. It works great for the South Africans because, again, they were being very badly, as, as Israel had been, they, had, they were being, like, horribly outranged by better Soviet artillery. And once they've got the G5, like, fuck it. Like, again, it's the best field gun in the world, right? Like, nothing really measures up to it in counter-battery fire. Um, So, unfortunately for Bull, in 1980, the story about his little cannon caper goes public. The Washington Post writes, quote, when press reports later revealed that the munitions had gone to South Africa despite a U.S. trade embargo, the Customs Service began probing SRC. Bull enlisted Trudeau, who's an American general who had once headed Army Intelligence, and Richard Bissell, former Deputy Director of the C to take his case to the highest levels of the Carter administration. Within a few months, Lawrence Curtis, the customs agent who headed the bull probe, found that his ambitious plans for wide-ranging indictments of numerous individuals and firms in three countries for arms export crimes had come unraveled. Bull and one other individual were allowed to plead to reduced charges, a move that resolved the case quickly but also eliminated any possibility that a trial could produce potentially embarrassing revelations about any involvement of U.S. agencies with Bull's munitions exports. Sports. I was totally surprised, very disappointed and bewildered, says Curtis. And Curtis quits not that long after this. Um, now, the House Subcommittee on Africa subsequently discovers that the state's OMC had been told of the Bull South Africa scheme three years before the shipments were reported publicly and had done nothing. The preponderance of evidence was that through the CIA introductions, the United States was turning a blind eye, recalls subcommittee chairman Howard Wolp. The United States government was totally negligent in enforcing American law. So, again, this is like the CIA is heavily involved. Like they we absolutely approve of this until it gets discovered. And then it's like this. Yeah, you got to fall on your sword a little bit, buddy. Um, But we'll make sure the investigation doesn't get that far and you just get kind of a slap on the wrist. You know, like you're going to have to take one for the team here 
but um, we're not going to let them actually fully investigate your company or what's happened. So they, yeah, it's they a great shut indication. down. It's such mm-hmm. a great example of how these American agencies work, right? Or many, mm-hmm. many government agencies work. The actual supposed will of the country or the law of the country is irrelevant to the agency. And they really run as a rogue state within a state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and th- that's like exactly what happens here. And they try to promise bull like, hey, if you just play ball with this, it's not going to be that bad. Um, and they wind up being a little wrong. So so bull pleads guilty to one count of smuggling 30,000 shells, two cannon barrels and a radar van to South Africa without a license. Now, you would think that would be a pretty serious crime. I think if I were to smuggle 30,000 high explosive shells to any country, I would probably get in a lot of trouble. Um that would be my guess. The federal prosecutors recommend no jail time. <laughs> well, it was against the communists, right? We, we yeah, it was, to help, it was to fight communists. Yeah, right. um, and it was actually, this is a rare case. The judge in this is, I guess, kind of rad because he puts Bull away for six months because it's up to him, right? So he is able to like, the Fed, The feds are trying to give Bull no time at all. And this judge is like, oh, fuck that shit. Like, I, you have to do some fucking time. Like, I, like fuck you, man. Um, and so Bull actually does go to jail for six months, which he's fucking livid. This makes him so angry at the United States, at this judge. Like, he's just enraged. And it is like, it's weird because, like, obviously, no sympathy for a man who gets in trouble smuggling arms to the apartheid South African government, right? Like, fuck that. Fuck you. But also, he did get screwed over, right? Like, he was just doing what the army and the CIA wanted him to do. (laughs) It did teach him a hard lesson about how the U.S. government actually functions with its allies. Yeah. And it's one of those things like, you know, we talk about how nice Jimmy Carter's post-presidency thing is like the Carter administration does everything they can to get this guy off because they're fine with it. Everyone's fine with it, except for this one judge. So good on you, judge, for doing something i wonder what happened to that judge did he like wake up dead one day probably had a bad fishing trip yeah he might have (laughs) this was the period in which there were more consequences for making the cia angry (laughs) (laughs) um you know who else makes the cia angry nestle yeah (laughs) (laughs) they do that nestle's intelligence arm does now significantly outrange the cia um it's it's really uh, they uh, come from behind victory for the Nestle Corporation. Our primary sponsor. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was boarded. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, and we're back. So when we last left off our buddy, Gerald Bull, he's been kind of fucked over. He also totally deserved to do time for smuggling guns to South Africa. But also, he's not the one who probably should have gotten the worst penalty for that. Probably a bunch of CIA dudes who should have been punished um, for that and a bunch of other stuff. So uh, Bull is very angry um, and uh, it's 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 just kind of a fucked up situation. True to form, he goes on the warpath against his former employer and like spends a lot of time in the media shit talking the United States and like particularly our level of weapons development. He tells a Canadian journalist, quote, the U.S. has obsolete conventional weapons and no morale in their armed forces. They couldn't defeat Timbuktu in a fight. And this is not long after the end of the Vietnam War, so he's like, he's also not not far off, you know? He's kind of pouring a little salt into the wound. Yeah. Bull's U.S. and Canadian businesses had gone broke as a result of the whole scandal, but his Belgian operations were still humming along. Now furious at both Canada and the United States, he moved to Brussels and started making money the only way he knew how, by selling really fucking big guns. He designed a new howitzer based off of the GC-45 for Austria, and he made a cool 5 million selling them the plans bull told the austrians hey you guys are gonna be making this cannon your 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 arms industry at home there's not a whole lot of you don't need a whole lot of guns for the austrian army you might want to consider selling them and by the way i think i know a guy who's in the market for some really big guns the little dude you might have heard of named saddam hussein yeah baby (laughs) our favorite romance novelist is in the game 
course. A story about a man who wanted to build the biggest gun ever would, of course, involve Iraq at some point. It is the 70s. (laughs) So his guns, the Austrians start making a shitload of Bulls guns and sending them to Jordan, who then sells them to it. Well, they're being sold to Iraq, but kind of by way of Jordan so that the Austrians can pretend they're selling to Jordan. Because you can't really sell guns to Iraq right now because Saddam Hussein was a little bit of an international pariah because he just invaded Iran and started this horrible uh, one of the great bloodbaths of the 20th century. So it's kind of dicey selling guns to Saddam right now. So they have to hide it yet again. Uh, here's the Washington Post quote. According to a still classified Austrian report, Saddam, whose war with Iran had bogged down, met with the Austrian interior minister in April 1982 and demanded to know where are our guns? Can't you speed up delivery? We require them urgently. Vest Alpine was Austria's largest state-owned industry, but facing slumping sales and layoffs, it made a risky secret decision to violate neutral Austria's ban on selling weapons to belligerents, and in the next few years sold Bulls cannons not only to Iraq, but also to Iran. Today, the the two former Austrian chancellors and various other cabinet ministers have become the subject of the largest criminal investigations in Austrian history. Documents and records in the Vest Alpine sale of 200 GHN-45s to Iran indicate that the Reagan administration, pursuing its tilt towards Iraq in the Iran-Iraq war, quietly eased the sale of guns to Iraq, but sought to prevent the Austrians from selling bulls guns to Iran. Now, this was an unusual piece of moral consistency from the Reagan administration, because they absolutely sell guns to the Iranians, too. Like They they have no problem selling weapons to the Iranians, but they do briefly try to stop bull. Um, The CIA... What what better way to make profit when you sell meat grinders than to also sell the meat? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, The CIA actually sits down with the Austrian ambassador and shows him like CIA satellite photos of these uh, artillery pieces in an Iranian training center. And there are some like token efforts made to stop further trade. But Iran gets like 200 of these guns. Bull's business with China was doing gangbusters now, too. So he also starts through the CIA selling guns to China because the CIA has a vested interest in China having artillery that can outrange Soviet artillery because the Chinese and the Soviet are having all sorts of fucking kerfuffles right now like border kerfuffles and we're kind of this is after nixon goes to china we're very much tilting like towards china especially as like an anti-soviet sort of thing so the cia is very bullish on the idea of china getting their hands on some of these gigantic fucking bull cannons um and china loves this guy uh they invite him to a test range in manchuria in 1983 and his guides in china showed him that they had collected every academic paper he'd published over the course of his career going back to the 50s they told him they wanted his help to aid arms maker norinko in producing a full line of his 155 millimeter cannons now they understood that they were dealing with a guy who had a massive ego and they provide him with food drinks and flattery he even has his photo taken with deng xiaoping and was uh with deng xiaoping and was invited to teach a course at nanjing university which he did so they're very much like oh we get what kind of man you are we will we will we will make you as happy as possible because we want very large guns we would like the biggest guns you can make us please Now, there's a little bit of a problem here, because in order to sell this technology, or at least his knowledge of how to make it to China, uh, there's a munitions control license, right? Like you have to, there's a bunch of things you have to do to sell weapons to China if the weapon technology is of U.S. origin. And Bull is a U.S. citizen now. But he's also a Canadian citizen, and he gets his friend Trudeau, this army general, former head of intelligence, and his CIA buddies to argue that 
since he's Canadian, the weapons are not of U.S. origin and thus no export license is necessary. Um, And the State Department is like, this is not a very good justification. But the CIA is again like, no, 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 no. Let this shit happen. We want to get these guys the biggest guns we can get them. In 1984, this story broke when a customs agent, acting off of a tip, searched Bullet an Airport and found a signed $25 million arms contract with China in his suitcase. <laughs> Maybe don't take that one with you. <laughs> well, you couldn't fit the cannon in your suitcase, yeah. but you could certainly fit the contract. Yeah, just keeping his, his, keeping his giant international crime contract in his suitcase as he walks through security. Um, So there's a grand jury investigation, and it looks again like Bull is about to go away for arms dealing. But again, the CIA steps in and they squash the case, which dies completely. He doesn't even go to trial at this point. Like they just put an end to this because they really want uh, China to get these guns. And in fact, in 1986, the Pentagon actually steps in directly to help China complete their 155 millimeter cannon production line designed by Bull. The Washington Post reports, quote, according to a U.S. defense consultant involved in the project, the Army issued a U.S. funded foreign military sales contract to a California firm to provide China with a 155 millimeter artillery fuse manufacturing line. Initially, I was surprised, this consultant said. I thought Norinco only made 130s, smaller guns. So why were they building 155 millimeter fuses when they didn't have 155s? Well, the U.S. government knew they were building 155s prior to 1986. Barely a year later, said the consultant and Israeli intelligence sources, Norinko had made its first sale of the so-called WAC-21, bull-designed guns, to Iraq. According to a person associated with Bull's work in Iraq, the scientist soon caught the attention of Kamil Hussein, an influential cousin and son-in-law of Saddam, with a proposal that Bull, Norinko, and a Spanish firm build a huge 203-millimeter self-propelled howitzer for Iraq. It's fascinating to me that even when he's helping China build these guns, they still keep winding up in Saddam's army. <laughs> like all Everything flows to Saddam Hussein in this period. If you're making big guns, they are winding up in Saddam's armory at some point. Saddam's like, yo, dog, I heard about this thing called the Paris gun. I kind of want the Tehran gun. Can you help me with this? I would like to shoot Tehran with a giant cannon from Baghdad, (laughs) please. Um... And yeah, so so Bull works with uh, Norinco and a Spanish company, and they make this massive 203 millimeter howitzer for the Iraqi military. There's a prototype of this stupidly huge gun called the Al-Fau uh, that was produced and shown off at an arms show in Baghdad. And Saddam is over the moon about this. If you know anything about our man Saddam, motherfucker loved his guns. Um, literally got an education by threatening his principal at gunpoint, uh, was, was a big fan of big guns. Um, and he is enthralled by bull. Um, finally bull has found a guy who's like anything you want to make, man, as long as it's a real big gun, like I I'm, I'm on board. (laughs) Can you gold plate one of these? I kind of want two of them. Yeah. Can you gold plate one of these fuckers so I can carry it around? (laughs) So in 1988, Saddam Hussein signs a contract with Gerald Bull to produce more normal artillery. So now Bull is just working directly with the Iraqi government. So he signs this contract to make, you know, more 155s and 203s. But he also in the contract is included something else. He finally has a contract to make the gun of his dreams. See, Saddam was an ambitious man, and he wanted to start his own space program. Now, if you've ever interfaced with any relics of the old Ba'athist government or talked to a single Iraqi who lived under that government, the idea that Saddam would have had a successful space program is um, 
a, a, a fun proposition. I think a lot of things would have burst in, in reentry. Um, but Bull was confident that his genius was enough to overcome the fact that Saddam Hussein was terrible at running Iraq. From the BBC, quote, The Iraqi government paid Bull $25 million to begin Project Babylon, the first true space gun project, on the condition that he continued to work on their artillery. Project Babylon began life as three super guns, two full-sized Big Babylon 1,000-millimeter caliber guns and a prototype 350-millimeter gun called Baby Babylon. The full-size Big Babylon barrel would have been 156 meters in length with a one-meter bore. In total, it would have weighed 1,510 tons, far too big to be transportable, and so instead would have been mounted at a 45-degree angle on a hillside. (laughs) The absolute biggest gun anyone has ever thought to build. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like, the the 156-meter-long barrel, a 1,000-millimeter like Jesus Christ! It's, it's like, really hard to wrap your head around that yeah. size, honestly. When you think about it, when you really put that into context, it's a you know gun the size of a skyscraper, right? Yeah, like it, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, each shot would have used nine tons of a specially designed propellant. Um, and using this propellant, Big Babylon would have been theoretically capable of shooting a 600 kilogram projectile across a thousand kilometers of distance putting Kuwait and Iran well within striking distance from inside of Iraq. Alternatively, the gun could have been used to launch a 2,000-kilogram rocket-assisted projectile carrying a 200-kilogram satellite. Now, had it been completed, Big Babylon probably would have been a really low-cost way to launch satellites of a certain size. Right now, NASA estimates it costs about $22,000 per kilogram to put something into orbit. Gerald's gun would have cost about $1,700 per kilogram. Over and over again, the concept doesn't sound it, like... It the, seems... The, it makes sense. The yeah. idea is plausible. Yeah. yeah. And, and like Saddam probably... If he had not been quite the guy that he was... Um, and he had actually had this thing built, he probably could have made good money on it. You know, like the problem is that the Iraqi government under Saddam was, and, and today there was so much corruption that I don't know how much I think they would have actually been able to like get this going, but they were able to like, like, it's not really that much more complicated than, than, than sucking oil out of the earth and selling it. So like, I think theoretically this could have been a really significant industry for Iraq. Like if they'd actually built this thing, they could have made a lot of money shooting satellites into space very, very cheaply. They would have literally been, they would have literally been the little guys satellite launching platform. Yeah. They could have democratized satellite launch. Yeah. And it's interesting to think if he hadn't done some of the special, like hadn't done some of the uh, the aggressive things that he'd done, or and and was asked to do in some cases by the CIA, if Iraq had built this thing and started launching cheap satellites, and we had gotten to like the '90s and the internet era, and there had been fucking Iraq willing to put a satellite into space for goddamn nothing and for anybody, maybe a really interesting set of changes to like what happens on the internet. Like who the fuck knows where that could have gone? I would have had Starlink um, sooner. Yeah, would have Starlink sooner. Um, now, of course, Saddam Hussein was Saddam Hussein, and everyone who found out about the super gun immediately assumed he was going to use it to shoot at people. Um, because, and, and it's the kind of thing, maybe he is Saddam Hussein, he does a lot of shooting at people, 
he's also it's a bad weapon like it's people who will talk about like was he planning to use this as a weapon will point out like it's one of the worst things you can imagine as a weapon system because planes exist right it maybe he could have like shot at iran with it and uh, iraq had air had you know uh, during at least during points in the war air superiority but like if he had thought to like fire at israel or even kuwait like you can blow this thing up very easily. It's not, it can't defend itself. It cannot be hidden. It is extremely obvious where it's firing from and it can't really move. Like it's not a good weapon system. Um, so I, I kind of, I'm kind of of the opinion that yeah, yeah, he might not have wanted it as a weapon. He might've wanted to like shoot shit into space. Um, and that was when people who would like in conversations with other weapons designers, they'd be like, well, are you worried that he's going to use this to like shoot whatever other country? Gerald would be like, well, why? It, it would just be throwing your gun away. It's going to get bombed and it'll be useless then. Um, so and, and it is one of those things. I, I, I should probably talk about what the recoil on this thing would have been because it is not possible to fire without the entire world no- noticing the recoil force from shooting this gun once would have totaled 27,000 tons, which is equivalent to a small nuclear blast. Shooting this thing would have been a seismic event detectable in every country on Earth. Like, <laughs> it is hard to overstate what a big fucking cannon this would have been. But, you know, what if it wasn't the cannon itself to be used as a weapon, but what if it was to shoot weapons into space? Yeah, I mean, that that's that is the thing. And that's actually what one of the one one of Saddam Hussein's members of government argues that that was the purpose. It wasn't meant to be used as like field artillery. So what, um, like what years are we talking right now? This is 80. Yeah, this is like the 87, 88. 80, I mean, we're talking like, the Star Wars era. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, so it makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, and General Hussein Kamel al-Majid, a former head of Iraq's weapons development program, later said, quote, it was meant for a long for long range attack and also to blind spy satellites. Our scientists were seriously working on that. It was designed to explode a shell in space that would have spl- sprayed a sticky material on the satellite and blinded it. And that that does seem like maybe more plausible. Um, it's a glue gun from Catch-22. Yeah, he's made a big glue gun. Yeah. <laughs> He's made Remember like one of those. Two, they're going to shoot the German shells up. They glue all the B-17s together and they fall to earth. Just yeah. Saddam Hussein, like drunk at one in the morning, watching a Spider-Man cartoon and go, getting on the forum. I have an idea. Or he read Cash 22. and He's like, this is a good idea. Yeah. We can just glue the satellites together and they'll fall to the earth. Mm-hmm. It's very funny. I don't know how much I believe what Hussein Kamel al-Majid is saying because he's one of a number of guys who defects from Saddam's government to Jordan to work with the UN and like some of those guys were telling truth about some, but they were also all liars who had been part of like the Bathist administration and been fine with Saddam until they pissed him off and thought that they were going to get killed. At which point they fled and, you know, turned on him in order to get a better deal themselves. Like none of them are trustworthy people is what I will say about all of these. There's a number of these generals who like defect some of like the bullshit we get uh, during the second invasion of Iraq is because these guys who defect from the Iraqi government make these very lurid claims about Iraqi weapon systems that are not true. I'm not convinced Saddam actually wanted to use this as a weapon at all. I, I, he's not a dumb guy. He does make some dumb calls, but I, I think that like, He's pro- probably thinking like we could make a fuckload of money with this thing. He might have legitimately um, just wanted to be part of the space yeah. race. Or I mean, yeah, like, like, seriously, yeah, it would have been cool. Yeah, um, he was that kind of dude. I kind of think he might have not had violent intent with this thing. He might have just wanted to get make a shitload of money. Um, who knows? 
In May of 1989, Baby Babylon, a 45-meter-long prototype, was finished and mounted on a hillside. Meanwhile, parts for the big guns started being made in Great Britain, Germany, France, Spain, Switzerland, and Italy. Once again, this was all extremely illegal. You're not allowed to sell Saddam like new weapon systems you are certainly not allowed to build him a cannon that could shoot space like that is very against the law <laughs> so they're hiding all of this as like industrial equipment for like reservoirs and shit like oh we need these big tubes for some like civil engineering projects so we can have them made in the uk that the british don't know these tubes are meaning to be a fucking gun barrel although of course they do know because none of this they don't keep this a secret very well so this gun gets under construction like five different countries, and it's actually coming together. Gerald Bowles, the dream of his entire life of decades, he has the backing, he has the place to do it, he has the technology, he is going to make his super gun. But uh, his good luck doesn't last, Carl, because on March 22nd, 1990, Gerald Bowles suffered a significant setback. He was shot three times in the back of the head with a silenced pistol outside of his apartment in Brussels. That tends to put a hitch in your plans. Yeah, yeah, that's really gonna that that'll 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 really interrupt your uh, your your weapon design goals. Very few gun designers have continued to work after being shot three times in the back of the head with a silenced pistol. <laughs> I gotta say, the minute you told me that, the first thing that popped in my head, and I don't know the story, so I'm curious to where this mm-hmm. is gonna go. But the minute I heard that, I thought Mossad. That's what everyone thinks, right? That is that is the number one uh, assumed culprit. Um, there are no witnesses, obviously, right? Which is also makes you think Mossad because they're pretty good at killing people. Um, no one has ever been charged with his murder. Um, whatever kind of suppressor they were using on the gun was good enough that like nobody even hears this. They find him later. You know, what's um, interesting when, about that is the Mossad was known for using suppressed 22s. That, so that, it, that, it, that, it's a pretty good chance. Yeah, that does line up. I have not found direct information on what caliber he was shot with, but I would not be surprised. That said, there are some other possibilities. When police arrive at the scene, they find his key in the door and a briefcase with $20,000 in cash. So everyone knows immediately, like, this is not a robbery, right? Uh, And it may even be that, like, they made sure to leave cash on him to let people know, like, this is as a message to other people, like, this was not a robbery. He sh- he was making this kind of shit for Saddam, and that's not okay. If you don't want to get shot in the back of the head, don't make fucking guns for Saddam Hussein. Um, would not be surprised that if, if it is the Mossad, that would be very within kind of the Mossad's operating principles. Um, now, and it's interesting because the people who suspect a Mossad, the, the most reasonable expectation is not because he was building them a super gun, but because he was also working to improve Iraqi ballistic missiles. Like they were worried about the scuds, basically. They didn't care about this. They recognize, too, the big cannon is not a great weapon system. Um, they're worried that he's going to make the scuds more accurate and he's Saddam's going to, you know, shell Tel Aviv again or whatever. Um, but really, it's also worth noting the Mossad is the the. what most people assume it could have been literally anyone the cia has a ton of reasons to want this guy dead right so does uk intelligence he's building his gun in the uk south african intelligence has a lot of reason to want this guy dead at this point um two weeks after his death uk customs seized parts of the super gun before they could leave port so there's even an argument to be made that like maybe this is a british operation right they find out what he's doing that he's doing it with like their manufacturers they kill him and they seize his gun um and yeah, yeah, who knows? We have no idea who killed him. Mossad is probably like the smart money, but he really, he had pissed off basically everyone with the capacity to carry off a hit. So it could have been, might have been fucking Iraq. Maybe he had some sort of falling out with Saddam, you know? 
They had an argument over the Denny Temple one night, and that was the mm-hmm. end of that. Yeah, he he was definitely you. You got to say one thing about Gerald Bull. He gave a lot of people reasons to want him dead. <laughs> it's, it's like I'm, it's, I'm trying to understand the moral of the story. Is it is it is the moral of the story? You should not necessarily be a amoral arms dealer. Yeah, and weapons designer, or is the moral of the story? Follow your dreams, and you'll get shot in the back of the head three times with a suppressed twenty two. I think I'm not sure a, which. Both of them are morals. Probably the wisest thing, if you have a dream, is to maybe even if you have a beautiful dream, you should not follow that dream to the point that leads you to make artillery for apartheid South Africa and a space gun for Saddam Hussein. Yeah, maybe or at have, that point you should have a moment of self-revelation. And go, <laughs> yeah. you know what? Maybe I'm the baddie. When you keep sitting down in meetings with Saddam Hussein, you should probably <laughs> think, and Donald Rumsfeld should have come to this conclusion too. I might be making some bad steps here. Yeah, these are some odd life choices. How did I yeah. get here today? I don't feel good about c- consistently being in a room with this dude. <laughs> and yeah, uh, shortly after Gerald's assassination, Iraq invades Kuwait and the dream of the super gun dies, at least for now. You know, we, we have the plans. We have the technology. We could build the biggest gun anyone has ever built and use it to shoot satellites or goo into space. I, I like the goo idea. I, I like never, the goo I don't, idea. I, I think goo in space has been a completely unexplored reality. Mm-hmm. I, I think we as Americans need something to bind us together again. And maybe we could build, I don't know, what Mount Rainier. We build a big gun onto the side of Mount Rainier and we use it to shoot the fucking moon. Well, I would think if we were going to do it in true American style, we would do it like Mount Rushmore. We would take something that was on a reservation and destroy right. an indigenous location, a holy mountain of sorts. Yeah, because that recoil to... is going to destroy everything sacred yeah. around so, it. So if you want if you want to do it right, we have to do it someplace that's on mm-hmm. indigenous land. And, and that we, would be the truly American way. We could call it colonialism the gun. Ooh. Yeah. And then we can use it to shoot settlers onto Mars, which we then fuck up. That's true. You know, mm-hmm. as a, one life goal, I guess, is to live long enough to be around to experience or learn about the first gunfight on Mars. Mm-hmm. This would get us there sooner. Yeah, uh, we could we could shoot people and guns onto Mars with our big gun that we built to shoot things into Mars. All things so, come yeah. back to guns and giant phallic symbols, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is, it is a pretty like <laughs> it is definitely not surprising that Saddam hears about this man's dream and says, I will absolutely build that big stupid gun in my country. You can you can put it anywhere. <laughs> I want the biggest, longest, largest thing to shoot goo with ever made. <laughs> yeah, I want a big long gun to shoot goo into space. <laughs> It is kind of like the fundamental desire of every dictator. Yeah. <laughs> I want you to build me a big penis with a 27,000 ton recoil that can shoot goo all over my enemy's satellites. <laughs> Which are basically their eyes, you know? Saddam just wanted to give a facial to the, all of the countries that had angered um, him. We just, re- we just came to the true conclusion. It was the Iraqi space Bukaki gun. Yeah, the Iraqi space Bukaki cannon. Oh, fucking hell. Um, all right, Carl. Well, that is the episode. That That's what I got for you. This was a real treat. I have to, I mean, I had heard about space cannons before, but I did not know all of these stories. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'd also been obviously very familiar with Maxim's work, but not Maxim himself. And the parallels between this are quite interesting, really. Yeah. When you think about people that are so driven by their goal that they lose the morality in the process. Yeah, and it is one of those things when you talk about the inevitability of such things, 
Yeah, when you have people that are that dedicated, like no one was ever the only way to stop Gerald Bull from making bigger and bigger guns was to shoot him three times in the back of the head. Like he was he wasn't he, he was he was so driven to keep making those things. Um which is 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 fascinating and it is it one also, of those like yeah. It also brings you back to that thought. I mean, those thought experiments that never actually can truly be explored besides just thinking about them because we don't know what the reality would be. But what if he had been given the opportunity to make his space gun without turning into this international arms designer and dealer? Like, yeah, you I know, mean, if, if, if Canada said, you know what, go for it. Make that big thing. We want to launch goo into space. And he had just gone down that path. Yeah. Perhaps. I mean, it could have changed everything. What if what if Hitler had sold his paintings? Right. I mean, who the fuck knows? It could have changed the world. Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing that would have, if he'd built his big space gun in Canada, motherfucker would probably be a billionaire because it seems like it would have worked and it would have been that like that's just an insane amount of money. If you can make it that much cheaper to put satellites in space. Not only um, that, what would it what would the butterfly effect be for the technology of what sure. we could now launch into space at low cost? I mean, yeah, that could have changed things in a very humanitarian way. Yeah, it is really interesting to like think about. And again, I, I, I am kind of from a. a ah from an alternative science fiction standpoint, fascinated the possibility of like you have the internet boom and Iraq is letting anybody with two grand put a tiny satellite into space. What, what does that do? Like what, how, how is that different? How is like piracy different? If the pirate Bay could just like launch satellites into space for a few grand a piece. And like, what does that change about like the late nineties, early two thousands and all of these, like it is kind of a fascinating question. Um, to think about it, it could have been pretty weird um or saddam would have done something shitty who knows I, I would like to think it would have done something amazing it would have brought great technology to the world but in reality we probably would have landed up with 4chan in space yeah because it again it is saddam hussein so you yeah. shouldn't expect things to go too well <laughs> like right <laughs> yeah. yeah he he is the guy that he is he probably he may have just sold it all to the disney corporation in order to shut down any ability to broadcast non-disney products you know like <laughs> We could live in a global dictatorship of Disney enforced by Saddam's space penis. Well, we're kind of close to that already. It's just through different mechanisms. Look, Disney, again, it trends and forces, right? Like, even without the space gun, Disney found a way. Life finds a way. Yeah. The corporate oligarchy finds a way. Yeah. With or without a gun to shoot goo into space with. <laughs> I do want to see that fucking thing fire. Nine tons of propellant. Like... <laughs> I wonder, I mean, honestly, legitimately, just firing that thing, how much, like, damage in the surrounding environment would happen from the concussion is hard to fathom. You would have to keep every possible living thing away from it, right? I mean... You you, you would have to have, like, a couple of miles clear. Um, Because it's just too fucking... You can't be near that thing. It's like like, hearing protection doesn't even matter at that point. It'll fucking liquefy you. (laughs) This will make when the Mythbusters destroyed a bunch of windows firing one of their little things uh, in one of their filming episodes seem very minor by comparison. Yeah, it is. It is a very it's it's yeah. Could have made a pretty good water slide, too. Um, all right, Carl, that's our episode. You got any pluggables to plug? Oh, yeah, my normal pluggable. Uh, I run inrange.tv. You can find me on multiple different distribution points. One of my big things that I did long ago is demonetize my work because I believe it's completely viewer supported. Therefore, no sponsors and no overlords. And uh, got a lot of hype once when I decided to publish my content on Pornhub. So at any rate, if you want to see gun content that's a little bit outside of the norm, you can find me at inrange.tv. Excellent. Well, check that out. 
Yeah, so my book is now available for pre-order after the revolution, my novel. You can pre-order it with an autographed book plate uh, in the front of the book right now at akpress.org slash after the revolution with a dash. Or if you just Google AK Press after the revolution, you'll find it. That's the easy way to do it. Just Google after the revolution, AK Press, pre-order my book. Uh, it'll come signed. Um, so that's pretty cool. And uh, yeah, that's going to do it for us here at Behind the Bastards for today. Sophie? You're not going to plug the live stream. Absolutely not. Okay. I'm not doing it either. I do it every episode. Mm. I don't. All right. We're done. Nailed it. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.